warned that there should be no place on earth where terrorists can rest and train and practice their deadly skills. I meant it. Today, I ordered our armed forces to strike at terrorist-related facilities in Afghanistan and Sudan because of the threat they present to our national security. Taliban must act and act immediately. They will hand over the terrorists or they will share in their fate. Poetry is the anarchy of the senses making sense. Poetry is all things born with wings that sing. Poetry is a voice of dissent against the waste of words and the mad plethora of print. It is what exists between the lines. A true poem can create a divine stillness in the world. There's this idea in mathematics called isomorphism. It means that two things are similar, but not just that two things are similar. It means that the ways in which those things came to be similar are themselves the same. A great example of this I heard was that of a game of chess. Two players are using one of those hilariously gigantic chess sets in the public park, and let's say for a lark, that one of those players isn't white. So the police are called halfway through the game and begin harassing them. Because of this, the players are forced to note down where their pieces were on the humorously large board and take the game home. Once home, they can pull out their own normal-sized chess set and place the pieces on the board exactly where they had them in the park. This notation allowed them to make the small chess set similar to the large chess set. But most importantly, had the situation been reversed and the police raided their home, forcing them to go play chess in the park, the notation would have worked exactly the same on the large chess set. This interchangeability between chess sets is an isomorphism. Were the players to try to apply their notes to a Monopoly board, they'd find them less than helpful. If you'll be generous with me for a second, there's a loose isomorphism in the modern retelling of classic comic books. You plug in familiar factors, superheroes with defined characteristics and expectations, subject them to similar narrative-driven transformations, and end up with more or less the same outcomes. The Hulk will always rage. The Wasp will always tangle with Ant-Man, and we'll come back to that. And Captain America will always show up late and represent a nostalgic misunderstanding of what the United States values and acts upon. We can also apply this admittedly stretched metaphor to the war on terror. Most people don't remember that the one post 9-11 was actually not the first. The similar inputs that resulted in both of these wars, rather than being a notepad with some letters and numbers, or culturally cemented fictional characters, are instead two presidential declarations of a war on terror, a poll from the Associated Press both times declaring state-sponsored terror in the Middle East to be the most reported story of the year, and of course, the youngest defense secretary in the history of the United States, and the oldest, Donald Rumsfeld. What worries me is that America's kind of lost its sense of the future right now. The idea is the future's going to be the collapse of empire, or the rise of the zombies, or something that wipes us all out. Grim, totalitarian, police state in Britain of the unreachably far future, like 1997. Comic book artists were not happy with Warhol or Hitchens either, any of the top artists, because they said, they took our imagery and we got paid page rates. In 1962, Marvel Comics introduced my very favorite character in their entire canon, the Incredible Hulk. 
Like so many superheroes, the Hulk represents a contradiction for left-wing fans that's certainly easier to ignore than to justify. As a hotshot young weapons designer, Bruce Banner was working on a top-secret nuclear weapon for the US military known as a Gamma Bomb. In the middle of the countdown to the first detonation in the Mojave Desert, Bruce noticed a teenager who had somehow sneaked onto the test site on a dare. Asking a colleague to cancel the test, Banner rushed out to save the boy. He was able to push the kid into a ditch at the last second, but in doing so, positioned himself to soak in a massive amount of gamma radiation with no protection whatsoever. Unknown to Dr. Banner, he'd been betrayed by the treacherous Russian scientist he'd asked for assistance. This part is often omitted from later retellings. A little-known fact outside of Marvel circles is that initially, the Hulk didn't appear whenever Bruce Banner became angry. Rather, Banner transformed at night and then returned to his puny frame at dawn. Obviously, this was later changed to give us the Hulk that we know today an uncontrollable engine of destruction that manifests whenever Bruce Banner gets mad. And anyone who knows Bruce Banner knows that this, unfortunately, happens all the time. In a particularly notable incident, it happened just a few months before the opening of Issue 2 of The Ultimates. The issue opens with a full-page panel. We're in Manhattan overlooking the reconstruction of Chelsea Piers, a waterfront district on the Hudson River. On the next page, we join Bruce Banner and Nick Fury, the head of S.H.I.E.L.D., in the fancy rotating restaurant, granting them the same view of the waterfront that we were just graced with. And because of this, Nick Fury is pissed. Banner finishes ordering his food by requesting no onions in his meal because they give him a rash. Thus is the thin, slouched scientist demonstrated to be mild-mannered, reserved. In other words, a shrimpy little nerd. In contrast, Nick Fury, whom I will remind you is here being drawn to look exactly like Samuel L. Jackson, orders nothing but a medium-rare steak, that classic symbol of powerful, collected masculinity in the United States. So why is he so angry? After the waiter leaves, Fury leans on the table and apologizes to Banner for the view. He hopes that the side of Chelsea Piers being rebuilt doesn't, quote, bring the whole Hulk thing back for Banner. Cut to a large red-drenched one-panel flashback of the Hulk and Spider-Man fighting at, presumably, Chelsea Piers. Cut back to the restaurant and we see Banner in profile and his reflection in the window. This is a classic Hulk storytelling technique that's dutifully and effectively employed by this book's artist, Brian Hitch. Because we see Banner reflected in the window and not the Hulk, we are meant to trust Banner when he tells Fury that he barely gives the Hulk a thought these days and that he feels ready to get to work immediately, even though Fury has just offered him another six months paid sick leave. He does admit, however, that he might seem a little spacey because he's been using stimulants to stay up at night. He's uncomfortable with how close being asleep feels to the Hulk being awake. Banner then asks Fury an important question, and Fury gives him a telling answer. Banner asks, quote, doesn't being in charge of world security get a little daunting when you're in the big chair? And Fury, with a smile, responds, quote, heading shield is like being the Pope, the Queen, and the President of the United States all rolled into one, Dr. Banner. With this answer, we have our season. If you'll recall from last episode, the writer Mark Miller revamped the Ultimates to be explicitly under the command of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is very much a U.S. operation in the Ultimate Marvel Universe. Thus, the quote, world security Banner was referring to must now be the remit of the United States. An entire American city of men, women, and children with security fences, guards, passes, caution. To understand why this is terrible, horrible, no good, and indeed very bad, we have to grasp a core concept. A concept that is, contrapuntally, a final form and a distilled essence. I'm talking, of course, about imperialism. Although the word empire itself, or any of its derivatives, may still evoke images of royalty and despots and insignia armies riding horses over hills in straight lines, imperialism today 
is so much more sinister than that as a direct consequence of how obscured and obfuscated it has become. Despite this, a simple axiom helps us part the fog. Imperialism is capitalism writ large. Instead of conquering and enslaving for gold and jewels and spices and fruits for mostly direct personal consumption by the elites, empires today conquer and enslave to install social and economic systems that exploit labor and natural resources. This is where it gets a little complicated. These resources are being exploited not for the personal use or consumption by the elites running the invading empire as they mostly used to be. Instead, these goods are appropriated to be sold for profit at huge markups, further enriching the elites who in the past had, again mostly, merely partaken of these stolen spoils. For instance, Canada today is home to around 75% of all of the world's mining companies. Canadian mining companies own two of the three largest gold mines in all of Africa. But of course, Canadian CEOs aren't going around wearing suits and hats made of pure gold. They don't drive gold limousines. They don't use the gold themselves. How is this imperialism? Well, this is where the state comes in. As Vladimir Lenin explained in his essay, The State and Revolution, the state is a tool for class oppression, which, I have to add, does not mean that it's a categorically bad thing. A tool is a tool, and a state apparatus is just that. We'll be exploring what this means throughout this whole season. For today's topic, though, we just need to know that the Canadian government has a program called the Canada Fund for Africa, the largest initiative of which is called the Canadian Investment Fund for Africa. The Canadian government has pumped $100 million into CIFA in order to privatize African businesses and services and to accelerate industrial development and to stimulate and expand, quote, mineral prospection and exploration. Why is this bad? This sounds positive. Now we have to answer that question with two questions of our own. One, if businesses and services in Africa are being privatized, isn't it weird that their now private owners are all in Canada? And two, might the Canadian owners be why the African workers are still very poor? In this new era of international super profits, imperialism is defined by economic systems that legally enslave large portions of the population. This is because profit is extracted from underpaid labor and then abstracted from the horrors of its origin by various mechanisms we'll get into later. We have all new vocabulary for imperialism today that is going to pop up again and again in this comic. The United States doesn't have colonies. We have territories. The United States doesn't have oppressed subjects. We have humanitarian aid recipients. The United States doesn't terrorize and enslave we intervene and privatize. Intervention and aid are going to be major themes that we'll see over and over throughout the season. Given the U.S.'s interest in maintaining a status quo that favors the enrichment of its ruling class, it's not hard to understand why the government invests so heavily in military equipment to do so. This brings us to the next part of the conversation in the restaurant. According to Fury, Half of the other patrons in the place are, quote, highly decorated undercover agents, meaning they've probably murdered a lot of non-U.S. citizens. And the food that he and Banner have just ordered will be submitted to an absurd number of tests to be certain they weren't tampered with or poisoned. Fury then explains how all his clothes from before he was made head of S.H.I.E.L.D. were replaced with a million-dollar wardrobe lined with all sorts of surveillance equipment. A team of 200 linguists constantly monitors every single word he and everyone around him say to make sure the speech patterns are consistent. And I'd like to take this opportunity to dunk on Mark Miller personally for being Scottish. Because he definitely has Nick Fury say that the linguists are underneath a Starbucks in, quote, downtown Oregon. Obviously, Miller knows Oregon is a state, but come on, that's funny. Fury then describes the position as being very much like a paranoid schizophrenic. But he claims it's worth it because the money is good and the girls are pretty. 
I'll let you look up the tragic tales of human trafficking in the US military on your own, because frankly, I don't have the stomach for it. Rest assured, it's there, and it's the opposite of pretty. Fury then mentions that as head of S.H.I.E.L.D., he has the power to request and approve funding for side projects. When Banner inquires further, Fury reveals to Banner that he now has approval powers over the Super Soldier program that Banner has been working on for nearly a decade, thus providing us, the audience, with the connecting dots between the current S.H.I.E.L.D. initiative and Captain America from the previous issue, which I'll remind you took place in the 1940s. The next few lines of dialogue, rather deftly, if somewhat unnaturally, exposit that Captain America's successful mission from 60 years prior saved the world and allowed the U.S. to take control of the mysterious alien technology that Cap and the troops had found in Iceland. They also established that Captain America's death and the subsequent loss of his body in the North Atlantic have made it almost impossible to reproduce the super soldier serum that turned him into the peak warrior he was, which is why Bruce Banner is now, in fact, the Hulk. His experiments, although flawed to the point of turning him into a uncontrollable green behemoth, are the closest the government has come to a second super soldier success. Seriously. To assuage Banner's doubts, Fury explains that crime is now super crime. Terrorism is now super terrorism. And basically, that the US needs something powerful and flexible. Finally now, we have our first George Bush name drop, as Fury says, quote, George Jr.'s talking five state-sponsored super people to begin with, and I need someone up there with a flag on his chest more now than ever before. Banner marvels at the news that Fury is, quote, downsizing conventional numbers and reinvesting in a small superhuman unit for 21st century problems. And then he gibbers that he himself has been wanting to implement this idea for a long time, because this Bruce Banner is the worst Bruce Banner. The thing is, the US has already had a parallel of this, or at least something similar, for quite a while now. It's called JSOC, and it should make each and every one of you listening right now afraid to go to bed tonight. Baghdad, 2003. Under Delta Force Commander General Stanley McChrystal, JSOC, the Joint Spec Ops Command, begins to emphasize the use of shared intelligence derived from all sources, from cell phone tracking to predator drones. JSOC had an unquenchable thirst for eyes in the sky, in particular for uh, unmanned aerial vehicles like the Predator to track a target non-stop in a process that they came to describe as the unblinking eye. 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 JSOC is the Joint Special Operations Command. And if you were to make a Venn diagram of all the elite teams of each branch of the U.S. military, JSOC would be smack dab in the middle. Headquartered in Fort Bragg in North Carolina, JSOC enjoys the privilege of being situated in the largest military base in the U.S. That's not the only privilege they enjoy, though. As revealed in a 2021 article in Rolling Stone of all places, despite a frankly ridiculous number of drug-fueled rampages and even murders, the United States government essentially turns a blind eye to the domestic activities of its most elite warriors. In fact, in a response to the publication of the article, the U.S. Army Special Operations Command made the following statement regarding the subject of this Rolling Stone investigation into some of the latest murders at the time. Quote, Due to his length of service, Master Sergeant Levine was entitled to a variety of due process protections. Let that sink in. JSOC is home to the most well-trained fighters in the country, and I think it's probably safe to assume the entire world. They've been deployed all over the planet with the express purpose of killing people quickly. It's imperative that we appreciate how much money, time, and expertise was spent in turning these reportedly 250-ish operatives into finely tuned death engines. And they've been granted immunity from the due process of law. Our strategy is this. Nobody talks, everybody walks. Isn't it ironic? that the logical extreme of a fictional team of legally sanctioned super soldiers actually happened in real life. You know, that probably wasn't something that Mark Miller thought about back in 2002. But maybe it was. 
we need to talk about our other recurring character, our golden boy, whose book ended both Wars on Terror. The input to our isomorphic output. Donald Rumsfeld. Even before 9-11, Rumsfeld was out to shape the U.S. military in ways that suited his particular ideology, one based on, quote, the market. In other words, privatized. To anyone following the news after the attacks, it was well known that Rumsfeld wanted to shake up the way the military operated. He wanted to downsize and specialize. Not many people know, however, that he was trying to do the very same thing even up to one day before September 11th, 2001. In fact, the speech you heard at the very beginning of this season was a presentation of his in which he suggested that the Pentagon be, quote, liberated from bureaucratic waste and, essentially, government oversight. Not that that means much with a government erected solely for enriching the owning class by means of force. Shots fired! Shots fired! Even months before, in May of 2001, CNN reported on several meetings between Rumsfeld and the Joint Chiefs of Staff that had the top brass worried over Rumsfeld's talk of radical change and the secrecy with which he conducted his business. Would Mark Miller know of this reorganizing of the military? Very possibly. Publications like the New York Times fell pretty instantly in line with the new rhetoric of precision and specialization. On the 20th of September, the Times published without comment the text from a briefing Rumsfeld gave earlier that day at the Pentagon. A quote, We are going to have to fashion a new vocabulary and different constructs for thinking about what it is we're doing. Sticks out to me from that text. On October 7, 2001, the Times published an article titled A Nation Challenged, Military Analysis, A New Kind of War Plan, which declared that the war the Pentagon was planning had more to do with special forces than overwhelming force. It justified this by regurgitating the White House position that they are more focused on attacking terrorists, not the Afghan people. Does this sound like the call for a more specialized task force? A smaller, more precise team? Perhaps one suited for dealing with super-terrorists? There's every chance in the world that Miller picked up on this because, as part of his contract to be a staff writer for Marvel, Miller moved his family to New York in 2000. He would have had plenty of opportunity to drink from the fire hose of propaganda at the time. So, in the spirit of Rumsfeldian reshuffling, Despite Banner's wildest dreams apparently coming true, Fury punctuates the scene by cutting off Banner's excitement over the new project and explaining that there's one small caveat. Banner's being demoted to number two. I'm gonna be real with y'all right now and admit something to you that you're 1000% allowed to make fun of me for on any of this show's social media accounts. Until I googled the distance from Manhattan to Pittsburgh, I had zero idea they were basically directly east and west of each other. I know I made fun of DC's wonky geography in the last season, so you'll have to excuse me as I pick up the pieces of my shattered glass house. If the aside about my personal stupidity hasn't given it away, we're now in Pittsburgh after an abrupt scene change. The establishing caption tells us we're looking at the, quote, Super Soldier Research Facility. I guess when your experiments are pumping out loyal, super-powered test subjects, it really doesn't matter what the hell you name the place. And who gives two shits? Who knows where it is? Right after the establishing shot, we're whiplashed to an extremely tight angle. Tight enough that some unexpected helpers are now filling up the panel. Probably in violation of some sort of code or standard or protocol, Thousands upon thousands of ants are carrying a number of boxes out of the building. A pair of human legs in what can only be described as superheroic armored tights stride past us, since we're still basically at the knee level, and that's our first glimpse of the only woman on the team's initial roster, Janet Pym, the Wasp. To the credit of both Miller and Hitch, they avoid the cliche of the sexualized introduction by making even this shot of just her legs actually quite pragmatic and utilitarian. She's behind a box that the ants are carrying, 
and even the armored tights above the knee are covered by the hem of a raincoat. The whole shot is really just meant to prime you for the fact that these ants are supposed to be there, and are possibly even normal or mundane. Finally, we pull out to see the whole room, and yep, Janet Pym is closing her umbrella and walking past two dudes on their coffee break who are watching the ants go by. The ants themselves are a surprise to Janet, but she's clearly taking it in stride. She asks one of the coffee breakers about them, and he jokes that they're technically classified and tells her that she'll have to ask her husband about them if she wants any details. She does so as she enters a very messy office, clearly in the middle of being relocated. For however much longer, it belongs to her husband, Hank Pym, also known alternately as Ant-Man and Giant-Man. And I'm going to resist the urge to portmanteau them into Giant-Man for everyone's sake. He gushes over the ants for a bit and exclaims that they've even been making his coffee, and apart from the particularly dumb species that keeps falling in, they've apparently gotten pretty good at it. Since this shows that the ants have at least some modicum of agency and aren't just mechanically controlled, I think it's time we talk about one of the most insidious weapons in the Empire's armory. MK Ultra. Oh my god, I'm just kidding. There's no way I'm wading into that mess. Not yet, anyway. I'll let you look that one up on your own, but I do want to make clear that MKUltra has not gone away. What we are going to talk about, however, is a form of programming possibly no less disturbing because of its sheer ubiquity. Patriotism. I bet you thought I'd save that for Captain America, and don't you worry. There's plenty to talk about there, but the fact that Hank Pym's army of ant servants have some measure of autonomy, makes him an excellent metaphor for a ruling class with control over a subservient media. On numerous occasions, author and historian Michael Parenti has told stories of fine, upstanding fellow Americans irately accusing him of not loving his country, simply because he had the nerve to point to and question the United States' nearly uncountable war crimes. Parenti refers to this affliction of the mind as super-patriotism. That is, the readiness to follow national leaders unquestioningly in their dealings with other countries, especially in confrontations involving military force. Citizens of other countries have your bog-standard patriotism, and for the most part, I'd tell you that the pride they feel in their country is probably much more deserved than the bog-standard patriotism your typical U.S. citizen feels. U.S. patriotism is built upon lies. Lies promoting lofty virtues, equality, justice, heroism. Lies to obscure heinous violence, engineered poverty, international oppression, and genocide both foundational and ongoing. I mean this in the most down-to-earth, rational way possible. These lies are a form of mental control. They are merely softening up your defenses for our impending invasion. They shape a narrative that becomes a reality, and that reality, however falsified, guides the actions of the majority of the U.S. populace. Six days after the September 11th attacks, author and journalist Rick Bragg wrote a saccharine editorial for the New York Times titled U.S. Binds Wounds in Red, White, and Blue. In it, he drips sugar all over the idea that millions of people in New York City and around the country are waving the flag of the United States in defiance of the nebulous idea of, quote, the terrorists. The first person Bragg quotes in the piece is Moses de Villa, an unemployed teacher from Puerto Rico. He states, quote, When they see us in the streets wearing the flag, they know that we are not afraid of them and that we will defeat them. Now, I don't know this man's history, but I do know that the United States has, historically, treated Puerto Rico like absolute shit. For the last 120 or so years, Puerto Rico has been ground beneath the heel of the U.S. Even way back in 1904, five years after the U.S. started its occupation, the New York Times published an article titled Porto, yes, Porto, Rico not prospering under United States rule, in which they openly admit that industry on the island had been doing better under the Spanish. Obviously, this still negates the agency and autonomy of the actual Puerto Rican people. 
but this framing illustrates that all the U.S. ruling class cares about is the resources that it can drain from wherever it can drain them. That's imperialism. That's the media normalizing it for people whose families have most likely been victimized by it. That's the United States. As an aside, it should be noted that in 2003, Rick Bragg also wrote the authorized biography of the captured PFC, Jessica Lynch. The details of whose rescue from Iraq earlier that year were spun into a breathtaking nationalist mythos in the span of days, only to be totally destroyed in her 2007 testimony before Congress. This is, again, part of the national myth-making process. You build a story around a heroic act, regardless of how true it is, and let super-patriotism you've already seeded into the country's media-consuming population pave over any missed details. Simultaneously, fictions like this serve to reinforce the very super-patriotism that allowed them to flourish unquestioned in the first place. Suppose I swallowed the hook, huh? Anyway, back to the comic. Jan Pym congratulates her husband on his recent successes with the ants and with his other projects. She holds up a bottle of medicine on which we can only see the Ozak on the label and tells him she hasn't seen him this supercharged about work since he built a pacemaker for their cat, which is just real stinking cute and I love it. Hank tells her he's working faster than ever before on all his ideas for super people, and we're not really given a full picture of what that means. The only specific one he mentions is his giant man formula, and we're going to see how that turns out quite soon. Jan appears to be satisfied with the current situation apart from one detail. Quote, that sweaty little banner. Hank assures her that Banner will be too busy working on his Captain America serum on the opposite side of their new complex, so she'll only ever see him at the Christmas parties and presidential visits. Then, Jan drops a bomb of a rumor that never gets substantiated. Is it true that Bruce Banner was given priority funding because he was conducting secret superhuman trials on civilians? This is bad. This is a bad thing. This is a bad thing that we should be mad about even having to consider. But you know what's worse? When Hank Pym simply responds with, quote, nobody in S.H.I.E.L.D. has a spotless record, but I think Fury was being serious when he said he wanted to drag us out of the shadows. Is this supposed to be absolution? Does being sanctioned to commit more crimes because you committed previous crimes count as redemption? The compassionate answer, the logical answer, the sane answer is, of course, no. But the United States answer in both this comic and the real world is yes. Those who know the history of the organization we're going to talk about will undoubtedly see this coming and are probably already howling about it. The group I'm referring to fits nicely in the Shadows to Light arc that the Ultimates are about to go through. They are, of course, the National Endowment for Democracy. And that seems pretty innocent, right? What's wrong with a little democracy? And doesn't the National Endowment for Democracy sound just like the National Endowment for the Arts? But wait a minute. Sure, it's good for the government to fund artists and the arts, you think to yourself. We can always use a little more of that. But doesn't the United States already have democracy? Is it possible that the U.S. needs more democracy? The answer is yes, but that's a discussion for another time. So then, what is the purpose of the National Endowment for Democracy if not to fund democratic projects. Well, I'm glad you asked, because funny enough, it's the exact opposite of that. The NED is the public face of the Central Intelligence Agency. This isn't kooky conspiracy shit, it's the truth, and it's where the quote from shadows into light arc comes in. 
The NED was created in the wake of the Iran-Contra scandal in a stunning display of tact and duplicity. After being accused of multiple violations of congressional law, the CIA, rather than, you know, stop, decided to flip the script and start openly funding projects meant to destroy the governments of other countries. This is not conjecture. In 1991, Alan Weinstein, the founder of the NED, told David Ignatius of the Washington Post for an article that is easily the most infuriating one I've ever read in all of my research for this podcast, that, quote, a lot of what we do today was done covertly by the CIA 25 years ago. Imagine if Mexico announced suddenly that it was creating a government organization specifically meant to disrupt the governments of the United States and its allies. I mean, seriously, imagine a press conference in which AMLO spoke directly into the slew of microphones in front of him and said that the Mexican government was about to create an office full of people whose day jobs, the daily activities they were getting paid to do, were to communicate with groups like the Proud Boys or the Three Percenters or any number of fascist weirdos that want to overthrow the U.S. government and to help them do it. That's the legacy of the National Endowment for Democracy. And believe me when I say that they will pop up throughout the lifespan of this podcast again and again and again. I think I'm a little pushed for time here, but I just need to remind you all of why the U.S. feels the need to intervene in the development of these countries. Two reasons. Either international corporations need cheap labor or exploitable resources that these countries could provide, or these countries are on the verge of establishing a government that won't let the U.S. exploit their labor or resources and will instead set an example to other countries oppressed by the corporate class that a better life is possible. The underground didn't always win, however. The police, through torture and their informers, usually got the information they needed. Let's very briefly review a few projects the NED has spearheaded. In 1989, the NED provided financial support to a group called Polish Solidarity in a successful overthrow of the Polish People's Republic, a communist government that had eliminated homelessness and established a jobs guarantee, and which doubled the population in the span of only 42 years. In 2000, the NED financed and instigated the Velvet Revolution in Serbia to the tune of $41 million. In 2003, the NED instigated and followed through with the overthrow of the government of Georgia, even going so far as to select the leaders who would take over. In 2004, the NED and other U.S. organizations offered $65 million to anti-government forces in Ukraine during the Orange Revolution. And of course, the NED was funding upwards of 65 NGOs, that's non-governmental organizations, in Ukraine in 2013 in the successful effort to overthrow the Yanukovych government, leading to all the power that the neo-Nazis now have in Ukraine. And not to date the podcast terribly, but it's astounding that people on the left have been having to remind so many well-meaning liberals that supporting a government full of actual Nazis is a bad thing. It's perfectly fine to say you stand with and support the Ukrainian people, but that has to come from an understanding that they were put in this position in the first place by the machinations of the United States. The United States has used Ukraine as a thorn in the side of the East, not just Russia, just anything that threatens Western hegemony. They are responsible for installing neo-Nazi or at least far-right governments all over the world. In light of this, it's fitting, then, that the next part of the conversation between Hank and Jan Pym has Hank describing how the Ultimates, an internationally focused paramilitary tasked with maintaining U.S. hegemony, are about to receive the largest public relations push in human history. He then mentions something important, that Tony Stark's involvement can only be a good sign for such a push. Remember that, thanks to his father, Tony Stark, a.k.a. Iron Man, is a billionaire specifically from the sale of weapons and technology created for war. We're then treated to a full-page spread of the Manhattan skyline bisected by a streak of blue energy that will be recognizable to anyone with a passing familiarity of Iron Man's aesthetics. 
For the rest of you who are unburdened by such knowledge, it's Iron Man flying home. To establish that Tony Stark is a bit of a showboat, we're presented with a few panels depicting him blazing past office windows full of gawking normies. With a shared smirk, Nick Fury, now in some shadowy shield bunker apparently, and a fellow shield operative, watch Iron Man's exploits on a screen and comment about how Tony loves to, quote, wave at every office girl in the city. Tony, overhearing them on the comms, corrects them by saying that he only stops to wave at the very pretty ones. And then his butler suggests that Tony might be gay because he's apparently overcompensating. Very cool and modern. I suppose this is as good a time as any for some temporal perspective. We are farther removed in time from this comic now than it is from the 1987 book featured in the first season. 1987 to 2002 is only 15 years, but 2002 to 2022 is five years more than that. After Iron Man lands and removes his armor, he orders a drink from his aides, a callback to the nearly year-long Iron Man story in the 70s about his alcoholism. He and Nick Fury have a walk-and-talk scene worthy of the West Wing, in which they discuss Stark's misgivings about Bruce Banner, and Tony drops the first of what I've decided to call our ultimate celebrity sightings. He says, quote, I find it hard to put my trust in someone who turned into a green Goliath and trashed Bridget Fonda's favorite New York patisserie. They then discuss Thor, and as I hinted at in the first episode, this version of the Norse God of Thunder is a bit of an outlier. Here, they introduce him by mentioning some sort of, quote, anti-corporate piece he did for 60 minutes. We never see that, but we'll talk about Thor's anti-corporate sentiments in episode 4 when we get to him. In fact, it's that scene introducing Thor to issues from now, and the scene we're just about to be graced with, that convinced me to do The Ultimates for season two. This next one is a big one, and I was yelling at my copy while reading it. It starts with Nick Fury explaining that he doesn't want any mutants on The Ultimates for political and public relations reasons, which actually might tell us all we need to know about how Mark Miller views the United States priorities, but I'm not gonna dwell on that because I doubt he thought through it all that hard. Upon questioning, Fury doesn't deny that he's requested Tony be on the team because he's a quote, trusted brand. The US public understands that Stark Industries is the first name in many household items. Fury mentions internet software and diet soda, and we can conclude that there are tons of other Stark-branded commodities that further enrich Tony Stark while further impoverishing his workers. And the rest of us. And of course, Fury continues, this new Iron Man armor you devised doesn't exactly hurt your case either. He then lists all the things that the Iron Man armor does that S.H.I.E.L.D. wants, but hasn't been able to produce. The next thing Fury says, however, shows just how in tune with the world of U.S. hegemony Mark Miller actually is. With a clear intent, Fury directs toward Tony, the only thing we're losing sleep over right now is why you changed your mind about sharing the Iron Man tech with my big bad military-industrial complex. What is the military-industrial complex? Put simply, the military-industrial complex is the arms trade. It's the symbiosis between governments that buy weapons and private industries that produce them. Private companies manufacture the weapons that the U.S. military uses. The M4 carbine is the definitive rifle of the U.S. armed forces, and it's produced by a variety of private companies, including Colt and Remington. The fact that Stark and Fury mentioned the sweet, sweet government contracts that Stark Industries is getting is very much in line with reality. Consider this. The total U.S. military budget for fiscal year 2001, determined in December of 2000, was $292,332,000,000. As many of you may remember, the 9-11 attacks presented a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, or so we thought, for the U.S. government to dramatically increase defense spending. The military budget for fiscal year 2002 was $329,151,000,000, an increase of nearly $37 billion. And I want to be clear, over and over in this podcast, that this is not just all academic. This isn't consigned to a history we can separate ourselves from, like we remove ourselves from animals in a zoo. 
of the $1.6 trillion Biden administration proposed budget of 2022, $756 billion of that is for the Department of Defense. 45% of the money the U.S. government is spending is going towards things like missiles, jets, tanks, and other military equipment we basically don't use. Nor should we. To put this in context, one of the recent increases in military spending that Congress authorized in the last couple of years to the tune of $80 billion was larger than Russia's entire military budget. The U.S. is the single greatest threat to world peace, and it's all because a few companies that make things that kill people really like making money off the government. However, Tony tells Fury that it's not about the contracts. I'm about to supply you with a direct quote from a comic that is about how cool and hip and modern it would be to have a superhero team that was sanctioned by the world's largest defender of corporate interests. A country so deregulated that people like Tony Stark in the real world can make $600 a second while their employees are forced to moonlight driving their own cars for a company that's trying to destroy public transportation or to destroy their bodies in dangerous work environments, or to work so many hours a week that they have no energy to enjoy the life that job is supposedly allowing them to build. Quote, I guess I just hit a point in my life when I wondered what things could be like if all the billionaires and government spooks tried to save the world instead of bleeding it dry. This demonstrates a distinct misunderstanding on the part of Tony Stark, and we can presume on the part of Mark Miller, just how it is that billionaires and government spooks are bleeding the world dry. As I've already shown in season one, billionaires and their complicit governments siphon wealth and power from the labor that provides them with their riches to begin with. Now, we're moving into larger international systems, and Stark Industries, and companies like it, are going to be right at the heart of the grift. But first, we have to finally get through this godforsaken issue in which nothing fucking happens. Cutting this exchange short, Pepper Potts, Tony's personal assistant and sometimes will-they-won't-they-love interest, calls him away to fulfill his other obligations of a takeover meeting and afternoon drinks with Cameron Diaz, ultimate celebrity sighting number two. An establishing shot of the Statue of Liberty and a rather large caption clue us into our next scene location, Upper Bay, Manhattan, current home of the Triskelion, Shields Amphibious Flying Mobile Command Center. I can't imagine what the carbon footprint of a floating fortress is, and frankly, I don't want to. Jan Pym is meeting Bruce Banner for the first time and welcoming him to the new headquarters with the Ultimates. The two of them make small talk about Banner's ex, Betty Ross, who's been made S.H.I.E.L.D. Director of Communications by Nick Fury. And let's just say that Janet doesn't come away with the best impression of Bruce. Once he's inside, Bruce grimaces at a comms call from Hank Pym, apologizing for not meeting him at the helipad and explaining that he was too busy testing the Giant Man formula. And now we can be sure who Banner was made second in command to. Over the intercom, Dr. Banner in the control room calls to Dr. Pym in the testing chamber and says that he hopes Pym is luckier with the Giant Man formula than he was with the Captain America one. We are treated to some techno babble about how the human skeleton can't grow beyond 60 feet or shrink below one inch because of an automatic reflex, and then the test begins. Hank Pym, impish devil that he is, takes advantage of a sudden and unexplained blackout to trick the research team into believing that he's turning inside out and is in horrible pain, only to greet them with a gotcha suckers as they burst into the chamber to find themselves staring up at his fully 59 foot 11 inch tall naked body. Bruce Banner, recalling his failure with the super soldier serum that turned him into the Hulk, mutters a terse yee-haw that probably no one hears. Like I said, this Bruce Banner is the worst Bruce Banner. Later in his apartment, Banner rants over a phone call from Fury about how envious he is of Pym's success and how he doesn't see how he can contribute to the team if he doesn't crack the super soldier serum. Fury cuts him off with some big news, which he strangely prefaces with, the answer to your prayers has just been answered. 
cut to a full-page panel of a frigid, unconscious Captain America being thawed from a block of ice, and a caption over it of Fury saying, you're not going to believe what they've just fished out of the Atlantic Ocean. And we're left with a beautiful image of the propaganda of the good war being resurrected for the Bush era right before our eyes. Greetings once again, all you beautiful listeners. It's been a momentous fortnight, but we're here to let you know that the capitalists will never get us down. As always, before we get started, we'd like to thank the latest patrons of the show. Our deepest, most sincere appreciation goes out to Pax 526, Malou, Hannah Murphy, Tom Dunn, Muck, Alex Ogan, Hank Hampestein, and Jim the Mailman. But... Onto more unfortunate matters. If any of you out there have information on the whereabouts or status of our beloved Bud up in the mountains, we'd be ever so grateful to hear from you. His last transmission has us all worried, and it weighs heavily on our hearts as we all do our own revolutionary organizing here. And, since we're apparently taking this seriously now, please send in photos of your pets. We'll post them to the show's Twitter, at CA Comics Pod with an X, and our Instagram, Collective Action Comics. You can send them to us there, or email us at collectiveactioncomics at gmail.com. Or you can join our wonderful Discord server and share them with all of the comrades there as well. If you enjoy the show, please rate us on Spotify or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We'll beat the capitalists at their own game. Somehow. We thank you for helping us keep this show going. And, as always... We hope you'll tune in in two weeks for the next thrilling installment of Collective Action Comics! Comics.